Vintage Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Did you know about Universal Orlando Resort Hotels? When you stay in Universal, it's just a hop between parks, city walk, and your room. And every morning, ooh, you can breeze <sighs> into one of three amazing theme wow. parks an hour before other guests. Plus, guests staying at select on-site hotels can skip the regular lines at most popular attractions with free Universal Express Unlimited to Universal Studios Florida Universal Islands of Adventure. Listen, we just got back. It was great. Loved it. It was actually really, 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 really fun. Truly, actually, I had a great time. It was wonderful. Go to www.universalorlando.com to book your stay today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Miller Lite. Here at The Ringer, we have our disagreements. But there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories, 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. There's really nothing more to talk about. That's right. If you have a real argument, let's hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Hold true. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Did you listen to the last episode? Harry produces a full in this episode. A full Patronus. What's that mean? Listen to the last episode. You'll know why that's adult content. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know whether the tortoises are supposed to breathe steam, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Don't lie, bellowed Black. You'd been passing information to him for a year before Lillian James died. You were his spy. He, he was taking over everywhere, gasped Pettigrew. Well, what was there to be gained by refusing him? What was there to be gained by fighting the most evil wizard who has ever existed? Said Black with a terrible fury in his face. Only innocent lives, Peter. You don't understand, whined Pettigrew. He would have killed me, Sirius. Then you should have died, roared Black. Died rather than betray your friends as we would have done for you. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, yes. executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished ensuring that his flobberworm is still alive at the end of the hour, it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal. Yeah? That was the easiest exam I've ever taken, but now it's time for the true test. Now it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're a cat, rat, or dog... Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans, which is a great place to bemoan the number of times someone tries to kick Crookshanks. Crookshanks never gets kicked, though. On yesterday's Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how force of will shapes chapters 11 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third book in this beloved saga. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 16 through 22, the climax of the book. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those Azkaban chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep. on details from all seven books and eight films 
and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment the full moon rises. So press that knot, mm. climb on in, because it's time to head to the Shrieking Shack. My leg's broken. Jason? Yeah? I thought you'd come and help your co-host. Your producer would have done the same for me. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to Ooh. sift through our thoughts. Yes, right into the pensive, because we're doing seven chapters today. Seven big chapters. And they are jam-packed. And it really, in order, to, in order to talk about them, we have to discuss the plot in detail as we're going through right. to explore the theme, No Hogwarts Express today. So, the defining theme of chapters 16 through 22 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is communication Woo! and reconciliation. Communication, so important, guys. Individual people have their own goals, their own hopes, their own fears and desires. Thus, in any group of people, numbering two to however high you want to count, disagreements will naturally arise within that group. A seemingly uniform assemblage of human beings may share a common vision of where they, as friends or coworkers or as citizens or whatever, want to go. But that doesn't necessarily mean they agree on how exactly to get there. And that's before considering miscommunication, misunderstandings, and the inherent chaos that emotion and personality play in people's daily affairs. Groups of people are often just one event, one unforeseen slight away from absolutely hating each other. And when rifts do appear, as they always will, the most expedient path toward reconciliation is the intrusion of an outside entity, a threat which forces communication, an enemy that leads to a reunion, a cause around which to rally. Ron and Hermione dance around each other even after reconnecting, with Ron careful not to pry too deeply about Hermione's seemingly impossible exam schedule, and they continue to unite around helping Hagrid stave off Buckbeak's seemingly imminent execution. The Ministry is coming to Hogwarts for the appeal and bringing an executioner along. That old guy? That's not a big deal. Hermione cries, but that sounds as though they've already decided. And yeah, it does. But in the face of something seemingly hopeless like that, what chance do any of us have unless we're able to rally together to try to fight, unless we're able to speak up in defense and support of each other when that fight fails? Exams are a whirlwind, including, among other things, something that looks suspiciously like a big old goose egg zero <laughs> from Snape and a thrilling obstacle course-esque practical exam from Lupin in which Harry gets full marks. Hermione fails at the Boggart when it takes the form of McGonagall telling her that she failed. Harry's flushed with success, but the high does not last long. Corny Fudge and company are here, plus that dude with the axe. Ron begins to try to sway Fudge, but Hermione stops him, reminding him that Arthur works at the Ministry, and this is a good instinct, as we'll come to see in time, how the actions of relations or allies are often held against Ministry employees. Speak the wrong way or sometimes speak up at all, and it can lead to your doom. The real key here is that Ron, Hermione, and Harry are once again open to receiving guidance and protection from each other. They're back together. They're a team. If only they could take the divination exam together. <laughs> Harry's... Session with Trelawney is responsible for producing one of the most crucial moments in the series, really. Professor Trelawney's second proper prophecy that we know of. The first one we're exposed to, but the second one chronologically. Her tower, her classroom is sweltering, sickeningly scented. And before Trelawney drops into her trance, Harry unwittingly makes a prophecy of his own. He refuses, despite Trelawney's encouragement, 
to concede that the hippogriff he's pretending to see in the orb has lost its head. Harry says, it looks fine. It's flying away. Perhaps Harry possesses the sight after all. He certainly possesses the ability to try to talk his way out of a sticky spot. And then, after dismissing Harry, Trelawney slips into her trance, eyes rolling, voice unlike her own. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. The Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever before. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. Hello, Harry. <laughs> bring me that teacup over there. Thank you. Oh. What? Wow, that was stirring. Yeah. We won't learn until the conclusion of Order of the Phoenix about the prophecy that Trelawney made to Dumbledore, overheard in part by Snape, passed along to Voldemort that set in motion Lily and James's death and Harry's chosen one legacy. We can't know upon first hearing this particular prediction to Harry that it's real. In the moment, it certainly sounds like if it's real or if it's fake, it's about black. But even then, we don't know how serious to take it because we've been so often led to yes. believe that Trelawney is a fraud. We know now, however, with the benefit of clarity, hindsight, that Trelawney was making another actual prophecy. And that in this case, that prophecy is in essence communicating a series of reconciliations between Pettigrew and his true identity, between servant Pettigrew and master Voldemort. And because of that, shortly thereafter, between Voldemort and his corporeal form. When Trelawney snaps too, she doesn't remember what she said, of course. And Harry can't decide if he's heard her make a real prediction or if that's her idea of a big finish to an exam. After Harry's divination exam, he rushes back to tell Ron and Hermione what happened. But they have other news. Buckbeak has lost his appeal. Hagrid tells them, don't come here. There's nothing you can do. I do not want you to see this. But our friends reunited, spring to action, with Hermione offering to go retrieve Harry's invisibility cloak from the witch's hump to avoid Harry risking being seen by Snape and to ensure our trio can sneak down to support Hagrid. Ron says, Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately. First she hit Malfoy, then you walk out of Professor Trelawney, and Hermione looked rather flattered. Love it. They're back together. Love it. When they show up at Hagrid's hut, he tells them, again, they shouldn't have come, but it's clear how much their presence means to him. And this moment, it's a powerful reminder of how separations in a friend group impact not just the primary parties, but those around them. There's collateral damage. Ron and Hermione's fights over the course of the book impacted Harry and Hagrid and everyone in their orbit. Now, however, they can all support each other again. And at Hagrid's hut, waiting for the executioner, Hermione discovers something shocking. Scabbers, alive, albeit dreadful looking, in a milk jug. Scabbers is frantic. Gross. And Ron's attempts to calm him make no difference. And as they flee to escape Fudge and Co.'s arrival, Scabbers... Squiggling frantically, trying to escape, they believe that they've heard the executioner's lethal blow. Chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. Let me tell you something about these final chapters, my friends. They are chock-a-block with characters who should be natural allies speaking past one another. This is a masterclass in how to build suspense. Everyone, it seems, is operating under enormous pressure and acting on incomplete information while relying on others to clue them in on the bigger picture. Time is wasting. Wands are pointed in every direction. A mass murderer, so we think, is on the loose. And oh shit, he's right here. The Dementors could show up at any moment. Professor Lupin, who by the way is a werewolf, and Crookshanks might be in on this whole shebang. Ron's leg is broken. And okay, now everyone's trying to explain what's going on all at once. That's basically how these chapters work. Harry and Hermione burst into the Shrieking Shack to find 
Black standing over the injured Ron. Black disarms the students with Harry's true love, Expelliarmus, and our heroes now are in a tough spot, so it seems. They fairly are thinking this is the end. If you want to kill Harry, you'll have to kill us too, Ron says, showing that true Gryffindor medal, but also getting shit precisely wrong. Not that Black, by the way, is helping his cause any. There'll be only one murder here tonight, he says. <laughs> hey, serious. Why so serious? <laughs> this is not helping. You're not putting anyone at ease. These chapters are crackling with tension, and it's all generated because no one, the audience in particular, can quite suss out what the hell is actually going on. On the one hand, Sirius Black, escaped convict, is treating Ron with what seems very much like tenderness. Lie down, Black says quietly. You will damage that leg even more. On the other hand, Sirius is the dude who broke the leg, and he's clearly here to murder somebody. Though let's cut Black a little bit of slack for his inability to articulate his case. Dude has just spent the last 12 years in Azkaban being tortured by Dementors, and since his escape, he's basically spent all of that time, as he will soon reveal, in his dog form, and is thus very, 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 very out of practice in using words or doing anything except whining and barking. He's also focused on his particular goal, not on making sure everyone who happens to be in the room with him feels totally caught up with what is happening. That's what Lupin will be called on to do. Things get muddled further when Harry... Facing the person who he believes betrayed his parents, physically attacks Sirius. Black's hands wrap around Harry's throat. Fingers tighten. He's choking Harry. No. Right. That's bad. That's bad guy stuff, right? (laughs) What does this mean? You know, good guys don't strangle children. Right. Even in self-defense, even if they have something they're really trying to do. But also, certainly a truly bad guy would have just whipped out his wand, used a little Lucius Malfoy-style Lavada Kedavra, and Harry would just be done. That would be it. Now, with the upper hand in the struggle, wand in hand, focused on magic again, Harry points the wand at the wasting frame. Black croaks, going to kill me, Harry? But Harry hesitates, because Harry is a hero. And he doesn't just execute people, even if he kind of maybe wants to. And also, something here, many things, in fact, do not track. Harry has come up against some real evil over the course of this story thus far. Some real bad people. Real killers. Black, whatever he's saying, whatever he looks like, and he's described as like scraggly and skinny, yellow teeth, really evil looking, isn't quite acting in the way that we've seen villains act before. You killed my parents, Harry says, and the statement really is more of a question. Did you kill my parents? Or in other words, give me a reason to use this wand. Again, the opaqueness of Black's communication does not help him. I don't deny it, he said very quietly. But if you knew the whole story, okay, okay, okay. Harry, as far as he knows, again, can get justice right now. He can kill Black here and now. Harry raised the wand, Luke says. Now was the moment to do it. Now was the moment to avenge his mother and father. He was going to kill Black. He had to kill Black. This was his chance. But also, what is that whole story, right? For all of Askaman, Harry has been haunted by the idea that he does not know the whole story. Draco leveraged this quite effectively to fuck with Harry over the course of this entire story. Harry has to know more. He needs to know what Black has to say. More than that, he's not sure this is who he is. He thinks he wants Black dead, but is that the same thing as really wanting it? And even if it is, is it the same thing as being able to do it? Harry can't reconcile his rage 
and the craving that rages on earth in him with his bone deep sense of right and wrong. He at least has to know the whole story before he actually kills Black. With everything on a knife's edge, JKR ups the tension even more. Lupin bursts in. How did he know where to go? How did he get here? As he'll reveal shortly, he used the Marauder's map. And something, or rather someone on it, caught his eye. The expectation for us as readers in this moment with Lupin here, the day is saved. Then, quote, Lupin spoke in an odd voice, a voice that shook with some suppressed emotion. Where is he, Sirius? Wait. What? That's a record scratch moment for the reader. What's going on here? Lupin and Black? Working together? Where is who? (laughs) What exactly? is going on. Certainly, it can't be that they want to murder Harry because Harry's just right fucking there. Yeah, just do it then. Just murder him. Black and Lupin speak quite cryptically for a bit. And then Hermione, thankfully, speaks for the audience. I don't believe it. Neither do we. (laughs) Harry, utterly perplexed, feels that he's been betrayed. I trusted you, he screams at Lupin. Let me explain, Lupin replies. Yes. Please do. Ah, but first, Hermione from the top rope. Harry, don't trust him. He's been helping Black get into the castle. He wants you dead, too. He's a werewolf. Lot to unpack here. First, classic werewolf bigotry, by the way. (laughs) Number one, if Lupin wanted to kill Harry, then why isn't Harry dead after the numerous times they've been alone together? Second, you might have mentioned that werewolf bit earlier, Hermione, because you've known for a long time. And third, you try to find time to mention the werewolf <laughs> oh bit God. when you're taking all those Listen, classes. You could have just paused time and then got back. And third, will everyone just please stop interrupting everyone? The conversation, <laughs> such that it is, is derailed for a few pages here off the most pressing subject, which is what does Black want? Right? Why is he here? Onto the subject of Lupin's lycanthropy. This is, again, wonderful technique from JK. She's hitting the pause on the thing that we actually want to know about, but she's replacing it with a reveal that we've also been wondering about. The result, fantastic suspense. More accusations fly. You're helping Black, who killed my parents. No, I'm not. Will you listen? Then Lupin does something that takes (laughs) everyone by surprise. He gives Harry, Ron, and Hermione their wands back. All of a sudden, the stakes, right? The power of life and death in this ongoing scene, which started in the field beyond the Whomping Willow, turn upside down for what feels like the second or even third time. Will someone just explain what's going on? That's the feeling you have as a reader here on the edge of your seat. Lupin does, or at least he explains what's going on from his perspective, which if we're going to make a power ranking of important things that are going on right now is like the legitimately the second or maybe third most important thing that's going on. Numero uno, again, still, As it has been, all book. What does Sirius Black want? Why did he break out of jail? What's he doing? That'll have to wait, because now Lupin tells us how he got here. If you haven't been helping him, how did you know he was here? Lupin tells them about the map, his history with it. Again, Rowling is keeping us from finding out the information that would put this entire puzzle together all at once. But she's, in place of that, is giving us stuff that is genuinely interesting and thrilling to find out about. Lupin helped write the map. Incredible. And he knows about the invisibility cloak because of, quote, the number of times I saw James disappear under. Wait, wait, hold on. Back up. Explain that. You want to say, right? You knew James had the cloak. But of course, Lupin doesn't do that because the thing he really wants to talk about is scabbers. Hold on a second. Scabbers? Scabbers the rat? (laughs) That's not a rat, says Sirius. Okay, then what is it? That's Peter Pettigrew. The dead dude? Again, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Let's find out. 
Chapter 18. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. The pronouncement that Scabbers is, in fact, a wizard, an animagus named Peter Pettigrew, is a moment that highlights everything we love about this story's construction. It is a true stunner, a genuine shock. And yet, when you trace back the steps that got us there, every single piece of the puzzle fits. It's masterful plotting, and it's also a masterful way in to yet again exploring the story's central theme, choice. In these closing chapters of Prisoner of Azkaban, choice links inextricably with communication and reconciliation. What do we know? Who do we tell? When? Will they choose to believe us when we do? What bonds are strong enough to overcome the unthinkable, the unbelievable? What treacheries are truly unforgivable? Harry, Ron, and Hermione naturally struggle to accept what they're hearing, and it doesn't get any easier when Sirius says that he tried to kill Peter once but failed and then lunges in an attempt to try to murder him again. Lupin's response is a reminder that sometimes the only way forward is a good old-fashioned explain-all. Sirius, no, Lupin yelled, launching himself forward and dragging Black away from Ron again. Wait, you can't do it just like that. They need to understand. We've got to explain. Ah, again, the paramounts of communication. Ron's kept Scabbers as a pet. Lupin himself has holes here that he still needs filled in. And Harry, Harry more than anyone else, he has a right, Lupin says, to truly understand because only then can he reconcile. Only then can he find peace. Sirius is like, yeah, 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 but... Let's do this fast. <laughs> Make it quick, Remus. He says, I want to commit the murder I was in prison for. Harry, as always, is ready to dig in. People saw Pettigrew die. But did they? They didn't see what they thought they saw, says Sirius. The map never lies, says Lupin. This produces a great moment that highlights the value of an open mind, of a willingness to engage, but puts it under this enormous time constraint that creates this tension. When Hermione says it can't be true— why can't it be true, Lupin said calmly, as though they were in class and Hermione had simply spotted a problem in an experiment with Grindylows. Love that so much. Pettigrew can't be an animagus, she says, because he wasn't on the ministry's registry and more on this in the seven. Here we get a reveal that alters not only what we can see in the moment, but so much that we've come or will come to learn about the past. When Lupin came to Hogwarts, the shrieking, shacking, whomping willow and the connecting tunnel were built for his monthly transformations. He was miserable during those times. But apart from that, he was happier than he'd ever been because he had friends, friends who, like Hermione, pieced together the truth. And once they did, they became animagi in order to keep him company. The ramifications here are obviously massive, but Harry isn't thinking about Pettigrew or Black. He's thinking about his father, about communication that he's never been able to have, about a relationship that he's never been able to access. My dad, too, said Harry, astounded. Lupin confirms, telling his audience that it took until their fifth year to master turning into anime guy. Quote, they couldn't keep me company as humans, so they kept me company as animals. Now, this was reckless, particularly when they began exploring transformed werewolf in tow the Hogwarts grounds, leading, of course, to the eventual creation of the Marauder's Map, as we recently discussed. But this was also a precious gift, unconditional companionship, the lengths that they were willing to go to support their friend. That bond, as so many things worth fighting for often do, came with a cost, Lupin says. We were young, thoughtless, 
carried away with our own cleverness. Mm. Just love that line so much. Lupin speaks here about the guilt that he sometimes felt operating in the shadows, violating the trust of Dumbledore, a man who'd given him safe harbor when so few, maybe no others, would have. And that guilt plagues Lupin still. All year, he says, he's wrestled over whether to tell Dumbledore that Sirius is an animagus. Quote, but I didn't do it. Why? Because I was too cowardly. Ah. It would have meant admitting that I betrayed his trust while I was at school, admitting that I'd led others along with me, and Dumbledore's trust has meant everything to me. Lupin had already lost Sirius as a friend, so it was easier for him to believe, or at least to talk himself into, the idea of Sirius using dark magic to enter the castle than it was for Lupin to reconcile internally the damage that his silence may have been doing. To communicate the truth, when doing so might drive a wedge between him and Dumbledore, one of the few people who's ever treated him as a normal person, as an equal. Lupin says that, in a way, Snape was right to suspect him. His passivity, he thinks, was almost as bad as active harm. And when Lupin mentions Snape, Sirius is like, who? You talking about Snivellus? <laughs> Lupin explains to Sirius that Snape's here. He's a professor. Then to Harry and company about the nature of the rift between Snape and the Marauders, stemming from the Willow slash Werewolf prank. And then... So that's why Snape doesn't like you, said Harry slowly, because he thought you were in on the joke. That's right, sneered a cold voice from behind, from the wall behind Lupin. And Severus Snape pulls off the invisibility cloak, wand pointed directly at Lupin. So good. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort. Snape's presence is a true oh shit moment, a wallop as forceful as one of the willow's branches. Snape helpfully, again, (laughs) explains how he got there, what he's doing there. You're wondering, perhaps, how I knew you were here. Indeed we are. Thank you, Severus. Lupin forgot his potion tonight. Run, kids. Yes. So Snape took a goblet along to his office. Lupin wasn't there, but the map was. Remus, my guy, allow us to channel our inner Fred and George for a minute here. Don't forget to wipe it after you've used it or anyone can read it. You wrote the thing. You should know that. Anyway, Snape followed Lupin, and at the Willow's base, he found Harry's cloak. Harry, just lock your shit up, dude. (laughs) Lupin tries to tell Snape, hey, man, you're getting it all wrong. Again, here we go again with people trying to explain to other people everything you think about what you think is going on is wrong, even though everything that you know about the facts actually fits your particular version of the truth. Right. It's not working. And why would it? These boys tormented Snape when they were schoolboys. And now in his mind, here it is in front of him, proof that he was right all along. Lupin could not be trusted. And he knew that Black had help from the inside. And here it is right in front of him, the proof. Two more for Azkaban tonight, said Snape, his eyes now gleaming fanatically. I shall be interested to see how Dumbledore takes this. He's quite convincing or harmless, you know, Lupin. A tame werewolf. <laughs> you fool, said Lupin softly. Is a schoolboy grudge worth putting an innocent man back inside Azkaban? And it's funny because you can see if you put yourself in either side, if either of these people's shoes— There's not much evidence to disprove their particular version of what they think is the truth. Right. And for Snape, of course, this isn't just a schoolboy grudge. It is, in his mind, one of the only true things that he's ever known. One of the things, maybe the main thing in his mind, that kept him and his love, his lifelong love, Lily Evans, turn Lily Potter, apart. In Game of Thrones, there's a fabulous moment when the Hound tells Arya, hates as good a thing as any to keep a person going. 
better than most. And at the end of this series, Harry Potter, we will realize that Snape was motivated throughout the entire story by his love for Lily, by the crushing weight of knowing that he'll never get a chance to explain things to her, that he will never have a moment of reconciliation. But, but he is also always driven by the hate that he felt for James Potter and his cohorts. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And that hate for Snape, it's not a miscommunication. It's not a misunderstanding that he's eager to resolve. Because even though it's toxic, even though it's festering, even though it pollutes his everyday existence, to him, it's real. It's something that he can hold on to. It's an anchor. It's a totem. Give me a reason, Snape whispered. Give me a reason to do it, and I swear I will. Black, stop dead. This is a chilling moment. It would have been impossible to say which face showed more hatred. And even once everything is out in the open here, once Dumbledore has played mediator, once these people are all essentially on the same side, this resentment grows like a cancer throughout Order of the Phoenix. There's no speaking sense here, no appealing to reason. Hermione tries, and she's met with rage. Keep quiet, you stupid girl! (laughs) Snape shouted, looking suddenly quite deranged. Don't talk about what you don't understand. And that's the thing about Snape. No one's ever taken the time to understand him. And the people who are so looked up to in this world were actually quite terrible to him. Quite terrible. And no one's ever acknowledged it and been like, you know, that was bad what happened to you. And that really, you wonder if somebody would have just taken the time to say that. That was terrible what they did to you. If somebody would have done that, maybe a lot of things would have been different. Sparks shot out of the end of Snape's wand, which was pointed at Black's face, and such is the emotion in the room. Snape tells Sirius he's going to call the Dementors. They'll be very pleased to see you, Black. Pleased enough to give you a little kiss, I dare say. He's described as having a mad glint in his eyes and seemingly beyond reason at this point. Chilling. It is chilling. These chapters, moments like that, really force us to consider that A lot of the people, a lot of the characters we love are very ready to take or destroy another life. (laughs) Harry isn't ultimately able to, but he wants to kill Sirius. He at least wants to think about wanting to kill Sirius. Black and Lupin, they unambiguously want to kill Pettigrew. And Snape cannot wait to watch a Dementor suck out Sirius Black's soul, reducing this man. Snape's nemesis, to a shell, to something less than human. How do we, as readers, reconcile that reality with how we feel about these characters? How do the characters themselves reconcile those impulses with the people that they believe themselves to be? Now, Harry, of course, wants to be the hero. He sees himself as a hero, despite his ingrained prejudice against Snape and Malfoy, who deserves it. (laughs) He generally wants to believe that people are good. That's his default setting. Recall how he was in the Chamber of Secrets when he meets Tom Riddle. <laughs> My good friend Tom! My good, Tom, help me! My good friend! <laughs> right? That's just who Harry is. He wants, in other words, to believe Lupin. He blocks the door and fires back at Snape, knowing that Lupin could have killed him a million times. Note to Harry, just because your defense against the dark arts teacher doesn't kill you in class doesn't mean he won't help someone else try to eventually kill you. Hello, Body Crush Jr. <laughs> Harry and Snape are both enraged. Snape may be Harry's protector, as his words here actually subtly but effectively reinforced, but that doesn't mean he likes him. He doesn't like him, right. like, at all. 
<laughs> he made a promise he's going to stick to it, but that doesn't mean he likes this kid. Reconciling the dissonance between how Snape feels about Harry, the person, Harry James's son, and Harry Lily's son isn't something he'll get to do in this life. Like father, like son, Potter, I have just saved your neck. You should be thanking me on bended knee. You would have been well served if he'd killed you. You'd Damn. have died like your father. Too arrogant to believe you might be mistaken in black. Now get out of the way or I will make you. Get out of the way, Potter. Woof. Yeah. Woof. Harry, Ron, and Hermione have an Expelliarmus orgy, all disarming Snape at once. Kaboom. The force of the joint blast knocks Snape off his feet into a wall. He's unconscious. Perfect timing That's right. to shift back to our Marauder explanation. Okay, so Peter's a rat. How, Ron and Lupin still want to know, did Sirius know Peter was this rat, that That's he was right. here, that he was Scabbers? This is a big hole that everyone needs filled. Sirius obliges. He pulls out the Daily Prophet clipping from his robes. Scabbers? Front and center. Fudge. Fucking corny fudge. Just handing Corn newspapers fudge. to prisoners. I knew him at once, Sirius says. How many times had I seen him transform? And the caption said the boy would be going back to Hogwarts to where Harry was. Lupin says, my God. He spotted the front paw in the photo where there's a missing toe. A toe, a.k.a. a finger. Good eyes. Yes. <laughs> also, like... Man, great picture in the Daily Prophet. Impeccable. Unbelievable. Impeccable pixel quality. It's like a 1080p, 4K picture of a rat. Uh, you make out the toes. It's basically a high-def gift. Unbelievable. <laughs> also, Cardi Fudge, my guy. Yeah. Why are you leaving shit for the prisoners? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Just this is a famously a sweetheart, you yeah. know? So that toe, a.k.a. that finger, that Pettigrew cut off himself to fake his death. Another explanation from Sirius. Just before he transformed, said Black, when I cornered him, he yelled for the whole street to hear that I betrayed Lily and James. Then, before I could curse him, he blew apart the street with the wand behind his back, killed everyone within 20 feet of himself, and sped into the sore with the other rats. Ron tries to blame Crookshanks for Scabber's failing health. And I think, again— Ron, he- drop it! <laughs> Fucking Ron. And again, here, I feel like we need to note— Look at how much stuff has happened, and we have not yet even have definitive proof that Scabbers is Pettigrew. <laughs> Continuing, Harry then remembers that Scabbers was looking frail the day in diagonally before Crookshanks even came into the picture. And alas, Crookshanks gets justice. This cat isn't mad. This is Black talking now. He's the most intelligent of his kind I've ever met. Yeah. He recognized Peter for what he was right away, and when he met me— he knew I was no dog. It was a while before he trusted me. Finally, I managed to communicate to him what I was after, and he's been helping me. This is, by the way, I what need- What a bubby. Need, give me all the Crookshanks and Sirius as a dog fan fiction. <laughs> oh, man. Crookshanks tried to bring Sirius Peter, and when he couldn't, he stole the passwords. Crookshanks fucking smart. Crookshanks couldn't communicate his intentions to humans and their failure to understand- his ambitions, what he wanted, caused so many unnecessary rifts. But, says Harry, none of that changes the fact that Sirius got Lily and James killed. Lupin has got to the heart of it first. We've all had it backwards. It was Peter who betrayed them. Sirius hunted Peter down, not the other way around, as Sirius confirms this. Finally, he persuaded them to make Peter the secret keeper instead. I as good as killed them, he says. This is much like 
Obi-Wan Kenobi's from a certain point of view <laughs> statement in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> anyway, Lubin demands that Ron hand over Scabbers. Together, Sirius says? I think so, Lubin replies. Best friends, Aww. torn apart by death and doubt for a dozen years, united again by clarity against a common enemy. They point their wands, boom, and a man blossoms out of the rat's body. It's Peter Pettigrew. There he is, missing that finger. And he's freaking out. He's terrified when Sirius says Voldemort's name. What? Scared to hear your old master's name, Black says. I don't blame you, Peter. His lot aren't very happy with you, are they? And it turns out Sirius hasn't just been reading the newspaper for all these years. He's heard things at Azkaban, where many of Voldemort's former supporters are. Sounds like they think the double-crosser double-crossed them. Voldemort went to the Potters on your information. And Voldemort met his downfall there. That's so interesting. Also, that perspective. Yes. That, could it have been a setup from the Death Eater's point of view? And as Sirius notes, not all of Voldy's followers wound up in jail. Hello, Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> Well-known Death Eaters right there. Can we freaking lock them up anytime? God. Those are the people, those Death Eaters on the loose who Peter's been hiding from. I must admit, Peter, I have difficulty in understanding why an innocent man want to spend 12 years as a rat, said Lupin evenly. It's a great point. When Pettigrew calls Black a spy, all remaining pretense and civility, of which there was a negligible amount of right. it this it really, anyway. it really wasn't much of that. It was basically like, I won't kill you this second. That was... And that second melts away. Yeah, that was the politeness. There's no more coded speech. There's no more hinting. It is now pure emotion, raw rage, a desperate thirst for understanding and revenge, Sirius says. I... A spy for Voldemort? When did I ever sneak around people who were stronger and more powerful yeah. than myself? But you, Peter, this is just savage. I'll never understand why I didn't see you were the spy from the start. You always liked big friends who'd look after you, didn't you? Sirius explains that he thought switching to Peter as the secret keeper was the perfect plan. Surely, surely, Voldemort would think the Potters would use Sirius, their best friend, a brilliant boy, turned into a highly capable man, an excellent wizard. Quote, this is an all-timer, Voldemort would be sure to come after me, would never dream they'd use a weak, talentless thing like you. It must have been the finest moment of your miserable life. Damn. Telling Voldemort you could hand him the Potters. Hermione has a great, great question. Why didn't Peter do anything all this time? Fabulous he, showing he could have done. He could have done something. It's the same issue with Lupin. Why didn't he do anything? The explanation that Black offers makes perfect sense. It also, deliciously, is extremely similar logically to part of the cover story Snape uses in Half-Blood Prince when convincing Bellatrix and Narcissa why he never harmed Harry. Yes. Hey, we didn't know Voldemort was coming back. Right. Also, Dumbledore's around. <laughs> Solid points, honestly. Yes. I have another question, Hermione says. How did Sirius escape from Azkaban, if not dark magic? And again, 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 I have to say, we're still not at the point where everything's cleared up. We're still just talking about and stuff. And yet you're just riveted you're for riveted. every second. This is it's why, amazing. This is how you make a suspense scene. What this a fabulous, is perfect. What a fabulous book. Black says he doesn't know exactly how he did it, but he thinks he was able to maintain his sense, his mind, because he knew all along that he was innocent and that that, quote, wasn't a happy thought. So the Dementors couldn't suck it out of me, but it kept me sane and knowing who I am. 
help me keep my powers. He was also able to transform into a dog, as in the Dementors, who are blind, just thought he was becoming less human. They didn't understand what was happening. It was They were confused by it. That's a fascinating insight into that magic. Right, and that he was just losing himself like every other prisoner. And when he saw Peter in the paper, he realized he'd be near Harry. Remember, he's at Hogwarts. He's at right. Hogwarts. He's, right. That's that piece of the puzzle. And able to strike if a whiff of Voldemort's return reached him. Yes. Ready to strike. Right there, close to Harry. And so Sirius knew he had to act. He was the only one who knew Peter was alive, he says. It was as if someone had lit a fire in my head and the Dementors couldn't destroy it. It wasn't a happy feeling. It was an obsession, but it gave me strength. It cleared my mind. So what do you do? Turns into his dog form and slips out one night when they opened his door to bring him food. Swam back to the mainland as a dog. And then he says, I've been living in the forest ever since, except when I came to watch the Quidditch, of course. You fly as well as your father did, Harry. Also, it's like, why is there a dog in the stadium? <laughs> Guys, why is there a huge dog in the stadium? Grim mystery resolved, oh, though. Yeah. This is great. He looked at Harry, who did not oh, look away. Believe me, Croak Black. Believe me, Harry. I never betrayed James and Lily. I would have died before I betrayed them. And at long last, Harry believed him. Throat too tight to speak, he nodded. Oh. This is it. This is the moment when he gets Harry's heart, when he has that belief, when he has the friendship and family again. The moment when information, communication, clarity, all those things overcome hate, misinformation. The moment when love beats hate. I'm and ready. it's the moment this scene has been building up to this whole time. And look how long it took. It's great. I'm getting emotional. This is just why Rowling is great. He could have said that the first moment sure. they walked in the room. But sure. no, all these other things that all these other machinations and things that have been spinning out over the course of the story take place. And it just keeps you enthralled. Pettigrew, for his part, is apoplectic. He knows that he's finished. Lupin and Sirius apologize to each other for thinking that the other was a spy and they reconcile at last and they decide time to murder Peter right here. Ron won't stop it. I let you sleep in my bed. Great point. That was terrible. Peter appeals to Hermione too. Then he plays his final card to Harry. James would have understood Harry. He would have shown me mercy. And finally Peter cracks. What could I have done? The dark Lord, you have no idea what weapons he has. What was there to be gained? Peter says from fighting him as his power grew and black replies, what was there to be gained by fighting the most evil wizard who has ever existed? Only innocent lives, Peter. And you don't understand, Pettigrew says again. He would have killed me. Serious. Then you should have died. Died rather than betray your friends, as we would have done for you. Black and Lupin stand shoulder to shoulder, wands raised. You should have realized, Lupin said quietly, if Voldemort didn't kill you, we would. Man. Goodbye, Peter. But Harry stops them. They can take him to the Dementors. I don't reckon my dad would have wanted his best friends to become killers just for you. I don't know if I agree with Harry here, but it's a wonderful sentiment. What would our Thrones folks say? The madness of mercy. It is the, truly the madness this of mercy. This is the madness of mercy. Listen, Ned Stark I think this is can a, relate. I'm glad you're sticking to your principles. I think this is a bad decision. Anyway, the nature of the Marauder's Bond makes Pettigrew's betrayal all the more hideous. For him, there can be no redemption, at least on this side of the war. They chain him up, levitate Snape, head back to the shack. Crookshanks, tail swishing Love in him. the lead. Love him. What a beautiful booby. Wonderful. We've talked a lot already about the craft and what she's able to pull off here. But to take in literally a matter of pages, right. minutes, the villain of the story, take the titular page. villain of the story, right. and make him someone we not only believe, 
but instantly love and care about, just an astonishing achievement. Chapter 20, The Dementor's Kiss. Here's the mark of a truly great and memorable yarn. When things seem too good to be true, when our heroes are walking off into the sunset, or in this case, the full moon, again, dun, guys, dun, you dun. heard it Well, if it's truly a great tale, in that moment when things are about to get very good, they actually get very, very bad. Think about Arya and the Hound again on the way to the twins where Rob Stark is about to get married and get the alliance back together. Go big on that final push to defeat the Lannisters. Here we go, guys. The Final push to the end, and then it doesn't go the way we think, right? Misdirection, delayed reveals, false endings. These are the tools of great storytellers. Our ragtag group of now heroes is walking off to Hogwarts victorious. Pettigrew is in custody. Years of mislaid justice about to be put right. Things are utterly peaceful and calm and so tranquil that Ceres and Harry can shoot the breeze and just catch up on shit. You know what this means, Sirius said abruptly to Harry as they made their slow progress along the tunnel. Turning Pettigrew in? You're free, said Harry. Yes, said Sirius. But also, I don't know if anyone ever told you, I'm your godfather. This is wonderful stuff. After all the tension and darkness and near murders, we, the audience, kind of want to stay in this moment forever, right? Yes. After all the nail-biting tension, and you're just like, man, I need to breathe. I'll understand, Sirius says. Of course, if you want to stay with your aunt and uncle, said Sirius. But, well, think about it. Once my name's cleared, if you want a a different home, the book says, a sort of explosion took place in the pit of Harry's stomach. Maybe someone reads this and thinks, wait, a minute ago, Harry thought this guy was a murderer, and now he wants to live with him? What? But to us, to most people, and this is her magic trick. This is JKR's magic trick. This does not feel rushed or forced at all. It feels... Instantly so right. A reconciliation between two people who had never even spoken before, yet whose lives had been so deeply intertwined. Quote, Sirius's gaunt face broke into the first true smile Harry had seen upon it. The difference it made was startling, as though a person 10 years younger were shining through the starved mask. For a moment, he was recognizable as the man who had laughed at Harry's parents' wedding. I'm going to cry. Harry has been through... So much. And he deserves this moment. He deserves a relationship with someone who his parents chose to stand for them, to represent them. Harry's missing family, his missing kin. It's a through line, a major through line through the story. And here, we feel as if we, with Harry, are on the cusp of a fundamental shift. Every book to this point begins with Harry at Privet Drive, with the maddening, abusive, neglectful Dursleys. Right now, In this instant, Harry and we can allow ourselves to believe that that's about to be over. This is more than just heartwarming. This is hope. This is incredible. Oh, yeah, but wait, we all forgot that Lupin is a fucking werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) From the book, a cloud shifted. There were suddenly dim shadows on the ground. Their party was bathed in moonlight. (laughs) Whoops, guys. Okay, change your plans. Everybody run. (laughs) But Harry can't. Ron has a broken leg. He's chained to Lupin and Pettigrew. And Harry won't abandon his friend, won't ever choose self-preservation over protecting those he loves. He is in many ways a Patronus. Sirius is serious. He screams, run. But wait, hold on, not you, Peter. Well, yeah, Peter just turned to a rat and he escaped. <laughs> Harry's Expelliarmus attempt is too late. Lupin's wand, which Pettigrew was using, flies away, but not before he turns into his rat form and is gone. Trey Lonnie's prediction is coming true right before our eyes. The chaotic 
chase slash fight slash escape leads our heroes to the lake on the edge of the woods. Sirius in dog form has been wounded by Lupin the wolf. And after the exchange that we've just witnessed, like literally a few pages ago, the idea that Sirius could now die, which by the way, you first time you read this, that seems very real. Oh yeah. That he could die right now. And we're just as worried about Lupin. (laughs) Yeah. Who we also love. Somebody could die right now. And it's, (laughs) that is unbelievable. Bearable. Certainly our friends can't deal with such a thing happening. There's so much going on right now. Should they go and get help? And don't forget, Ron, injured, Snape, out of it. What should Harry and Hermione do? We'd better get them up to the castle and tell someone, said Harry, pushing his hair out of his eyes, trying to think straight. Chaos. Then they hear serious yelp in pain. Harry and Hermione run toward the sound, which is coming from the lake again. Then the familiar feeling, impenetrable cold, depression sets in. The Dementors, drawn to Sirius Black's energy, are closing in. Harry tries to conjure his Patronus. The memory he chooses in this case is truly heartbreaking. I'm going to live with my godfather. I'm leaving the Dursleys. Harry tries desperately, forcing himself to remember that Sirius is innocent, to hold on to the hope of a new life, a new family. But the Dementor is here. Where there should have been eyes, the book says, there was only thin, gray, scabbed skin stretched blankly over eye sockets. But there was a mouth, a gaping, shapeless hole sucking the air with the sound of a death rattle. A paralyzing terror filled Harry so that he couldn't move or speak. His Patronus flickered and died. He reaches for Sirius, refusing to allow the Dementors to take his godfather away. This bridge to his past and portal to the promise of a different future, he can't let it slip away. No. His mother was screaming in his ears from the book again. She was going to be the last thing he ever heard. And Harry fails to produce his full Patronus, though we shouldn't judge the memory that he chooses in this moment because of that. Right. And then Harry sees a silver light growing ever brighter, circling around him and Hermione and Sirius, driving the Dementors away. He musters all his remaining strength to keep his head up and looks, and he sees an animal galloping away. For a moment, the book says... Harry saw, by its brightness, somebody welcoming it back, raising his hand to pat it, someone who looked strangely familiar, but it couldn't be, and then he faints. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure, Universal Studios Florida, and Universal's Volcano Bay. There's a Universal Hotel for every style and budget. Yeah. During our visit, we stayed at the lovely was. Low Sapphire Falls Resort. Beautiful. From the stone turret in the lobby to the inviting charm of each room and suite, you're surrounded by a haven that is inspired by landmarks of an island paradise. Amid the beach area, palm trees and pool, you'll find Caribbean-themed dining options, including... Strongwater Tavern, offering rare vintage rums. Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, yes, every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. We were on those water taxis sometimes. Sometimes it's a party on there. It It is a party. Every member of your party will enjoy the unique, unforgettable dining experiences at Universal City Walk. Our first night in Orlando, we dined at the NBC Grill and Brew with nearly 100 high-definition screens that immersed us in a stream of sports coverage. We ate a pretzel that was two stories high. (laughs) Expect much more than your average bar food as a mix of tasty classics and incredible new creations are on the menu. 
And no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, That's right. you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by AMC Network's Shudder, the premium streaming video service from AMC Networks. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment with new spine-tingling suspense and shocking horrors added weekly. Stream exclusive and original films, series, horror classics, ah! and blockbuster hits ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, yeah, iPad, yeah, Apple TV, yeah, Amazon Fire TV, yeah, Roku, yeah, and more. All for just four ninety nine a month, or forty nine ninety nine a year. You know what? I've watched horror movies on Shutter. And I like horror movies, and therefore I like Shudder. It's a great service if you like horror movies, as I do. For instance, there's just like a lot of the ones that you can't normally find, like the Japanese and Korean horror movies, which are really, really some of the most interesting horror movies in the genre. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use promo code binge mode. That's Shudder. S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash podcast. And use the promo code binge mode for a free 30-day trial. And now, back to binge mode. Chapter 21. Hermione's secret. Harry wakes up in the medical ward. He overhears Fudge and a victorious Snape. They're talking about the evening's events. And while it's crystal clear to Harry and to us that they have the truth of it bass backwards, the facts, again, as they appear, do fit their version of the narrative from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Black, escaped, mass murderer, snuck into Hogwarts to kill Harry with the help of Remus Lupin, confunded Harry and Hermione, who clearly are given too much leeway by school officials, and they snuck out of the castle to try apprehend and or kill Black. And here we are. Congratulations, Professor. Here's the Order of Merlin, second class. I'll do my best to get you to the first class. <laughs> Harry tries to tell the minister and Snape what really happened. And unlike so much of what's gone down in these chapters, this goes just how you would expect. Minister, listen, Harry said. Sirius Black's innocent. Peter Pettigrew faked his own death. We saw him tonight. You can't let the Dementors do that thing to Sirius. He's... And Hermione chimes in to support Harry, but of course it's no good. And by the way, you know... We know the truth, but this must sound ridiculous to the minister and Snape. Snape's theory, and let's be kind to Snape and assume that he really does believe that this is the case. Right. So Snape's version of events that the kids are confronted honestly makes a ton of sense. Dumbledore arrives. Great timing, that guy. And Harry and Hermione make their case again. Snape, who crucially was unconscious when the Pettigrew reveal occurred, asks dude, does my evidence count for nothing? I told you Pettigrew wasn't there. Dumbledore insists on speaking to Harry and Hermione alone. And this, understandably, infuriates Snape, who reminds Dumbledore that Sirius Black proved at the age of 16 that he was capable of murder. Dumbledore says, my memory is as good as it ever was, Severus. A nice, very subtle moment that we can appreciate more in hindsight between Snape and Dumbledore here. Kind of a I remember what happened there, just like I remember what I did for you. Get out of the room, listen to what I'm telling you. Subtext. Alone with his audience, 
Dumbledore explains that, sorry, kids, the facts all look like they support Snape and Fudge's version of events. A street full of eyewitnesses saw Black kill Pettigrew and many other people. Dumbledore says that he himself testified against Black. Now, does Dumbledore believe Harry and Hermione? Of course. But what can he do about it? This is the Ministry of Magic we're talking about. And anyway, extremely meaningful look at Hermione. We need more time. Dun, dun, dun. He tells them where Sirius is located, then adds, if all goes well, you will be able to save more than one innocent life tonight. Hermione understands what Dumbledore is asking. Harry, however, as he's been throughout much of the book, is totally in the dark. See, McGonagall isn't one to place all of her galleons on one horse. With the house cup at stake, she's looking to diversify. Winning points is just as much about being great at school as it is being a great seeker. So she gave her best seeker prospect the tool he needed to succeed. Why not give her best student the tool she needed to ace her classes? A time turner. That, we realize in this chapter, explains all that weird stuff we've been seeing with Hermione. How she seems to be in two places nearly simultaneously. How she's taking classes that legitimately happened at the same time. Generally seeming even more overworked than she normally is. Hermione now uses this device to travel back with Harry three hours in order to try and set everything right. And Dumbledore's reminder that they must not be seen rings in her ears. In this run, with Harry and Hermione retracing their steps the last three hours in order to try to rescue Buckbeak and then Sirius, we see the traits that make both Harry and Hermione who they are. Harry, as we will soon see once again, excels in the clutch. Danger brings out the best of him. Hermione, conservative, analytical, strategic. She always sees the larger picture. Numerous times over the course of this time-traveling adventure, Hermione keeps Harry from (laughs) really fucking up the timeline in their lives, keeping them to Dumbledore's instructions to not be seen. And when they piece together that Dumbledore's more than one innocent life comment refers to freeing Buckbeak so that they can then fly Buckbeak up to Flitwick's office and free Sirius, Hermione says that if they can manage that without being seen, it'll be a miracle. And Harry's reply is quintessential Harry Potter. Well, we've got to try, haven't we? Harry cannot reconcile standing pat. It's just not in his nature. Hermione, focused, lasered in on every detail. They have to, for example, free Buckbeak at exactly, precisely the right moment or the Ministry will think that Hagrid did it. Another example, when they're outside Hagrid's hut, Harry realizes that, hey, Pettigrew's just in there. We can just go snatch him. And Hermione whispers in terrified fashion, no, don't you understand? We're breaking one of the most important wizarding laws. Nobody's supposed to change time. Nobody. She explains the danger. How many wizards ended up killing their past or future selves by mistake, thinking dark magic was afoot. And Harry, for his part, displays that bravery and courage under fire that is so much the trademark of who he is. He explains to Hermione that the figure he saw at the lake looked like his father. But how could that be? He was thinking about his father, this is from the book, and about his three oldest friends, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Had all four of them been out on the grounds tonight? It's wonderful to hear Hermione explain that a really powerful wizard must have been responsible in order to drive away so many Dementors. This is a key stretch for us understanding not only 
Harry's will and his courage, which we've seen since day one, but also his skill and his innate power to reconcile the reality of his ability with his reputation. When he realizes he's at the point in time when they face the Dementors, he's overcome with curiosity from the book. Harry began to run. He had no thought in his head except his father. If it was him, if it really was him, he had to know. He had to find out. So Harry goes. He hides behind a bush near the lake, desperate to see if his father will appear. And he sees the silvery cloud that he knows he conjured in the past to little effect against the Dementors. And he knows that moment is approaching. But then nothing happens. No one comes. He sees one of the Dementors surrounding his past self lower its hood. And it's now or never. And then he realizes, who is the person here who looks like James Potter? Oh, yeah, it's me. <laughs> Harry Potter. Expecto Patronum, boom. And a brilliant silver stag gallops out from his wand, scatters the Dementors. Interesting to think that it's the realization that he is capable of producing such a powerful Patronus. That was the thing that triggered him to be able to produce this powerful Patronus from the book again. It stopped on the bank. Its hooves made no mark on the soft ground as it stared at Harry with its large silver eyes. Slowly it bowed its antlered head and Harry realized, prongs, he whispered. But as his trembling fingertips stretched toward the creature, it vanished. Shortly thereafter, when Harry and Hermione fly Buckbeak up to Sirius, they have just an instant to try to communicate their feelings, what discovering the truth of each other means, what they hope the future can bring, and Sirius chooses to spend it reinforcing what Harry himself has just discovered. We'll see each other again, he said. You are truly your father's son, Harry. Chapter 22. Alpost again. Harry and Hermione get back to the hospital wing and Dumbledore just in time. He's beaming. Well, he said quietly, we did it, said Harry breathlessly. Dumbledore locks them back in the hospital wing and they sneak into their beds where they pretend to willingly receive Madame Pomfrey's Dumbledore shade. Did I hear the headmaster leaving? Am I allowed to look after my patients now? And her boulder-sized chocolate that has to be broken apart with a hammer alike. Then they hear it, quote, a distant roar of fury. It's Snape, and he is pissed. Yep. They've discovered that Sirius is gone. Fudge, a true moron, says maybe he disapparated. The minister of fucking magic doesn't know how the magic of Hogwarts works. Truly incredible. Snape is in a towering temper, truly beside himself, screaming, you can't apparate or disapparate inside the castle. This has something to do with Potter. He's right. He's right. Snape, Fudge, and Dumbledore enter the hospital wing, and Snape demands answers from Harry. Fudge is very alarmed by what he's witnessing. Right. Calm down, man. You're talking nonsense. You don't know Potter, (laughs) shrieked Snape. He did it. I know it. Dumbledore, not yet ready to let Snape in on this secret. Interesting to consider in light of their long-term relationship and the, the unrivaled trust at play between them. Basically, in this moment, chooses instead to tell Snape he's being a dummy. And Snape storms out, leading Fudge to tell Dumbledore that Snape seems, quote, quite unbalanced, adding, quote, I'd watch out for him if I were you, Dumbledore. Theory fodder for the internet for years and years while this series was still going on. The response to that line, though, is classic Dumbledore. Quote, oh, he's not unbalanced, said Dumbledore quietly. He's just suffered a severe disappointment. Fudge is naturally most worried about how this will play in the press, but Dumbledore's comment about Snape is key. Snape was this close 
to getting what he wanted, yep. to finally reconciling his desire for revenge, and to getting recognition of his own, and it was wiped away from him. We, like Dumbledore, can simultaneously root for Harry and Sirius and empathize with Snape in this moment because he's overcome by grief for losing this chance for closure, for victory, for this moment of triumph over the people who bested him so many times. There are times when being who you are despite what the world thinks is an honorable and correct thing to do. No one should have to hide what they are. And sometimes, though, fear is too strong to overcome, not safely and certainly not alone. And occasionally, that fear is the fear that maybe, just maybe, people are kind of right. Yes. Lupin, now that his identity as a werewolf is common knowledge, after a well-timed dry snitch by Severus Snape over breakfast, has decided to leave the school. Sure, he could stick around, stick it to Snape and all those with the prejudice against werewolves, but really at what cost? Could he, though? The curse. Yeah, it's Lupin says, this time tomorrow, the owls will start arriving from parents. They will not want a werewolf teaching their children, Harry. And after last night, I see their point. I could have bitten any of you. This must never happen again. Harry in the audience surely wishes Lupin would remain. There's no question he's a credit to the school and a fine teacher. But Snape would still have to be in charge of his potions, which real talk would be untenable at this point. It just is not a situation that you could continue having. And the school is dangerous enough without a full-blown werewolf needing nights off every month. But their farewell isn't just about lycanthropy. It's also about their bond and about Harry's progress. Quote, from what the headmaster told me this morning, you saved a lot of lives last night, Harry. (laughs) I love this book. I just love Lupin and Sirius so much. If I'm proud of anything, it's how much you've learned. Tell me about your Patronus. And when Harry explains, Lupin confirms that James's animagus form was a stack. Harry never got the chance to know his father. But Harry's Patronus, his protector, takes his father's form. And Lupin, a father figure in Harry's life and one of James's closest friends, is the person who helped Harry discover that within himself, who helped him reconcile in this one small way, the absence of James in Harry's life. It's a beautiful moment. And Lupin, still one of the chillest dudes in the story, is like, I'm not your teacher anymore. Yeah. Not only did we have this moment, you also get to have your invisibility cloak and the Marauder's map back. He bids Harry farewell. As we've noted in an earlier episode, the beginnings of each Harry Potter book are the most formulaic parts of the story, and that's not a bad thing. Now, that said... The ends also follow a certain set of beats as well. Each tale invariably ends with a bit of FaceTime with Dumbledore. The headmaster always has that keen bit of wisdom that puts what we've experienced and Harry's experienced into the proper frame. When Harry frets over not having made a difference, Lupin is gone. Sirius still on the run. Pettigrew escaped. Dumbledore tells him it made all the difference in the world, Harry. You helped uncover the truth. You saved an innocent man from a terrible fate. Love that line. Sometimes the smallest victories can mean the whole world. Then Harry brings up Professor Trelawney's prediction about the servant of Voldemort. You know, that thing about breaking free, helping to return his master to life more uh, vicious and violent and dangerous than ever before. You know, that little thing. Harry says, was she making a real prediction? Do you know, Harry, I think she might have been. <laughs> Dumbledore says, who'd have thought it? That brings her total of real predictions up to two. Oh. I should offer her a pay raise. Wait a second. We're forgetting the broken teacup with Neville. <laughs> <laughs> now let's not forget Binky. And Binky. Or Hermione leaving the class. And 
anyway. Or Professor Lupin leaving them at the end anyway. of the year. Anyway. Just saying Trelawney might be good. I don't know. I'm <laughs> just saying. I don't know. That's still like <laughs> less than five. The substance of the real prediction will have to wait. Yeah. Of the first one. Classic Dumbledore. I can tell you everything now. This but, very yeah, logical segue from one prophecy to the other. But also, uh, let's put it. On, I, I also kind of put this on Harry for not being like, well, what was the first one? <laughs> That's the natural follow-up. Fabulous. Anyway. Fabulous point. Dumbledore then goes on to soothe Harry's fears over Pettigrew. And his fear that if Voldemort does return, it'll be Harry's fault. Dumbledore reminds Harry that his time turner experience should have shown him how complicated, how intricate, cause and effect are. It's our choices, yes, but that doesn't mean we can control everything. Right. It's like the weather, you know, just because the butterfly's wings beat in Africa doesn't mean that that caused the storm. Dumbledore also points out that should the prediction prove out, Voldemort will have a person in his service who owes Harry's life. Dumbledore says, this is magic at its deepest. It's most impenetrable, Harry. But trust me, time may come when you will be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. This is like... It does. It does. And also... You know, it's the Lord of the Rings thing. It's like, man, why don't they just kill Gollum, this fucking guy? Like, get this guy out of here. And then at the end, you're like, oh, my God. Wow. So good. I remember the first time I read that in the Lord of the Rings, I was like, holy shit. Because you're literally like for a whole book, like, fucking kill this guy. Jesus. He's annoying. The flip side of the madness is mercy is the magic of mercy. Yes. It really is amazing. And here again, we get this feeling. There's so much more that Dumbledore could communicate. If he wanted to. What a guy. But he doesn't. Dear sweet Albus. Dumbledore does have a few more things to share, but they are more specific to this moment. He says, I knew your father very well, both at Hogwarts and later, Harry. He would have saved Pettigrew too. I am sure of it. Harry is certain that Dumbledore won't laugh. And so he tells him that he believes that Mm -hmm. he saw his father tonight. And we get in response to this, one of the Essential lines about how Harry looks so much like James, aside from Lily's eyes. But we also get one of the series' signature Dumbledore moments and signature ideas about life and love and loss and about the things that stay with us forever, even if we never get a chance to reconcile with them. Dumbledore says, You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Your father is alive in you, Harry and shows himself most plainly when you have need of him. How else could you have produced that particular Patronus? Prongs wrote again last night. This line from Dumbledore about recalling the dead more clearly in times of great trouble is a theme throughout the story, a key idea. And it comes up in crucial moments, sometimes via an actual piece of magic, a device. Think of Harry in the graveyard, the echoes of his parents, of Cedric, Priory and Cantatum. Think of the resurrection stone in the forest again. Sometimes our characters recall those they've lost in moments of great duress, like Dumbledore thinking of his sister in the cave. Dumbledore continues, So you did see your father last night, Harry. You found him inside yourself. On the way home on the Hogwarts Express, Harry receives a letter carried by a tiny owl. Love it's from Wigeon. Sirius. He reveals that it was he at Magnolia Crescent, and it was he who sent Harry the firebolt. Shouts to Hermione, you were right, girl. You were. He tells Harry that should he ever have need of him, just send word. And he attaches his signature for the Hogsmeade permission slip, which, short aside, is fucking insane. 
I mean, I'm sorry. That's the dumbest thing I've ever. Heard. It's just what. By the way, I can go to Hogsmeade now because the mass murderer, is Sirius Black, said I could. Who's my godfather? It's How fine. did he access his <laughs> vault at Gringotts? How did he order a broom? <laughs> I just love that he's like, it'll be good enough for Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that is insane. Anyway, and he lets Ron, who's teasing the Quidditch World Cup and Goblet of Fire, keep the owl. And Harry should be ashamed of himself at this point, <laughs> by the way, because it's like your fucking godfathers on the run just gave Ron a present and you literally never have. Anyway, welcome pig to the family. One more moment to ruminate on the truth. The concept of the truth and the freeing feeling of communicating that truth. Harry returns to Privet Drive and Vernon Dursley asks if the envelope that Harry is carrying is yet another permission slip that he definitely will not be signing. Harry says no. This is a letter from my godfather. And Vernon's like, you don't have a godfather. He's like, yeah, I do. He was my mom and dad's best friend. He's a convicted murderer, but he's broken out of wizard prison and he's on the run. He likes to keep in touch with me, though. Keep up with my news. Check if I'm happy. Great shit. And on to the next year. Goblet time. Goblet time. Jason? Yes. We were young. Thoughtless. Carried away with our own cleverness. So true. If only we'd had more time to help give us some. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about another one of the most important and controversial magical objects in the Harry Potter story. Time turners. Mysterious thing, time. Powerful. And when meddled with, dangerous. That's a quote from... The Prisoner of Azkaban film, not the book, but Dumbledore's words of caution apply just as aptly to the on-page depiction of time's manipulation in the wizarding world. Time is one of the elemental ethereal properties studied in their own special rooms in the Department of Mysteries, along with the likes of space and love and death. And it plays a central role in the Azkaban climax, or really the second climax. There's like two climaxes in this book. When Harry learns how Hermione has been attending all her classes this year, and the two use her time turner to save a pair of innocent lives. But while Harry and Hermione could travel back three hours to rescue Buckbeak and Sirius, they wouldn't dare go back further to save you know, like Harry's parents, that's because of Croker's Law, named after Department of Mysteries employee Saul Croker. <laughs> Love Saul. Saul. Great guy, so that's <laughs> Saul, who found that five hours is the longest period of time that may be relived without causing serious damage to the traveler or time itself. This was the belief when Harry and company were at school, though it would change later. More on that in a moment. Accordingly, time-turners like Hermione's work by encasing an hour reversal charm inside an enchanted hourglass, which was necessary because the charm was unstable on its own. These hourglasses were then placed on necklaces for the traveler to wear and to revolve the device the number of hours he or she wished to journey back. Traveling back any further than a few turns of the hourglass could yield calamitous effects. For instance... The case of Eloise Mintumble, a witch who traveled from 1899 back to 1402 mm. and got stuck there for five days. Oh, boy. Upon her return to the present, she was 500 years old and died. <laughs> At St. Mungo's. Tough. And per the write-up about the incident on Pottermore, quote, her five days in the distant past caused great disturbance to the life paths of all those she met changing the course of their lives so dramatically that no fewer than 25 of their descendants vanished in the present having been unborn. Tough stuff. <laughs> Very Eloise Mintumble. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't even the worst part, as her trip also affected the ripples of time itself again from Pottermore. 
Tuesday following her reappearance lasted two and a half full days. Whereas Thursday shot by in the space of four hours. The Ministry of Magic had a great deal of trouble covering this up. And since that time, the most stringent laws and penalties have been placed around those studying time travel. Tough stuff once again. Those laws and penalties applied both during Azkaban, thus Hermione's extreme caution when using the device, and further into the future. By the time of Cursed Child, not canon, several decades <laughs> after the events of Azkaban, the study of time had yielded a couple more significant breakthroughs for travel. In the play, we learned that Theodore not working for the execrable Lucius Malfoy, had created a prototype of a true time-turner, which allowed its user to travel basically as far back as they wanted, but only for five minutes. Nod is arrested for his work, and the prototype placed in the ministry before Albus and Scorpius steal the device and create a bunch of inadvertent mischief in the past. Eventually, they set things right with the use of a better version of Nod's work, which allows its users to travel anywhere for any duration of time. Although the Cursed Child plot not only returned to time turners, but expanded on the idea, Rowling has written about the difficulties their introduction caused her while crafting the rest of the seven core books on Pottermore. She wrote that she did not regret it per se, because Azkaban was one of her favorite books, but, quote, I went far too lightheartedly into the subject of time travel, and, quote, it opened up a vast number of problems for me, because after all, if wizards could go back and undo problems, where were my future plots? Aha! This is like that... Th- conversation in Looper where Bruce Willis tells himself that if you start talking about time travel, the next thing you know, you're making diagrams with straws. (laughs) Rowling explained that she solved the issue in three stages. First, she made sure to emphasize the dangerous consequences time travel could wreak. Second, she had Hermione give back her time turner so the core cast of characters no longer had access to one. And third, she smashed all the rest of them in the great fight scene in the Ministry in Order of Phoenix as those Devices became trapped in an endless loop of falling over, unfalling, then refalling, and rendering them basically unusable. Ultimately, Rowling concluded, quote, This is just one example of the ways in which, when writing fantasy novels, one must be careful what one invents. For every benefit, there is usually a drawback. Such respect for my queen. Always owning it. Yeah. Love her. Jason? Yes. Tell them whatever you'd like, but make it quick. That's right. I want to record the rest of the podcast I was imprisoned for. Because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Azkaban chapters 16 through 22. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Yes. Number one. As Percy hoped to enter the Ministry of Magic, he needed top grades. We know how this will go. Speaking in the Ministry, Hagrid's testimony that Dumbledore tried but failed to convince the Committee of Buckbeak's Harmless nature foreshadows the rift that will form between Dumbledore and the Ministry of Magic. One that we might say has existed for quite a while because yeah. Dumbledore has really been quite scornful of the Ministry for a while. Turned them down several times. Number two. Yes. Quote, the executioner McNair. He's an old pal of Malfoy's. Well. There's another one. Another <laughs> one for the lock em up. <laughs> Indeed. McNair is also, as we'll learn, a Death Eater, and is, among other things, one of the first to return to Voldemort in the graveyard in Gobble to Fire, the one who delivers the Devil's Snare that kills Broderick Bode in order, there emerging as a challenger for the Alliance of the Giants in order, again, also a primary participant in the battle of the Department of Mysteries in order of the Phoenix, and a participant in the Battle of Hogwarts when he is bested by Hagrid in Deathly Hallows. 
Lotta McNair. Yeah, Lotta McNair. <laughs> Number three. Love that moment where Hermione is like, hey, uh, Pettigrew can't be in an animagus because I actually looked this up and there's like only so many and Peter Pettigrew isn't one of them. That's when we learn that not all animagi have been registered. The Marauders, of course, were not, but this will be a key beyond the book, and Goblet and other unregistered Animagi will play a key role in the plot, and that time, Hermione is able to piece it together before anyone else. We speak, of course, of the awful Rita the Beetle Skeeter. Have fun in your little fucking glass cage for the rest of your life, Rita Skeeter. Or just for a little while, actually. Number four, when Fudge concedes that the Dementors are totally out of control almost sucking the soul out of an innocent boy, and that they'll have to be shipped off right away. He's thinking about other things that might help with security, and he says, perhaps we should think about dragons at the school entrance. Dumbledore has a nice, Hagrid would like that reply, but nice subtle little bit of goblet foreshadowing here, because of course, we will have dragons at Hogwarts for the first Triwizard Tournament task. Number five, Harry as he's heading up the tunnel with Sirius and the rest of that ragtag gang, says, have you got a house? When can I move in? Yes, he does have a house. Black family is well-established in the wizarding world. What do you think they, of course they have a house. What are you talking about? And we will find out a lot about it in Order of the Phoenix. Sadly, it's going to be Harry's house one day. Number six, in explaining his origin story, as a werewolf, Lupin says, I was a very small boy when I received the bite. Ah, we don't get any more here, but we do learn that Fenrir Greyback the werewolf responsible for maiming Bill Weasley was the culprit who bit Lupin because Greyback was upset with Lupin's father. He did it deliberately. He targeted Remus. Awful. Quote, Greyback specializes in children, Lupin says then. How horrid. Number seven. Hermione's gobsmacked about attacking a teacher, but in one direction or the other, teacher-students attacks or attempted teacher-student attacks appear in every book in the series. Quirrell versus Harry. Lockhart versus Harry plus Ron. Crouch versus Harry and all of Umbridge's various terrible things that she did. Harry versus Snape and Harry versus Amicus Caro. No safer place than Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Huggy Huggy Hogwarts. Kill your students now. <laughs> Mal, what we need is more time. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we need a few moments to shout some last minute points to award the House Cup to. Hermione Granger. Now, you think it's Crookshanks, but that's fucking nuts. <laughs> I just... Crookshanks <laughs> pushed a knot in a tree. Listen. But he doesn't have hands. He can't do anything. He has paws. Great. He can't and, do anything. Uh, daring and commitment daring, to pursuing truth and justice. And, and he was one of the only <laughs> warriors throughout this entire Get story who knew what was what. Shouts sure. to my dude, Crookshanks. I believe in you no matter what. Protect Crookshanks! Anyway, Hermione <laughs> continues to b- display her burgeoning rule-breaking spirit, breaking into the one-eyed witch's tunnel to recover the cloak and then later attacking a teacher. Listen, when her friends require her to do this, she will do it. She just doesn't do it all the time, but she'll do it when she needs to. <laughs> We're just going to ignore, by the way, that Hermione totally lost it when facing a boggart during her defense against I mean, that was a tough look, but otherwise she did great. She did do great following through on Dumbledore's We Need More Time. Yeah, but she had to actually execute it. It's the one thing to be like, here's what you do, but she actually had to do it. And the other thing is, she's got the chosen one in her ear the whole time, like, why don't we just run in there and freaking grab Pettigrew now? A lot of backseat driving from Harry. Harry, could you shut the fuck up? Very Why don't we just run in there? We could take care of this whole thing. It's like, yeah, 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 but did you not hear what I said? You can't. (laughs) 
be seen or fuck up the timeline, Harry. Harry was basically almost like a modern day Eloise Mintumble, <laughs> if not for Hermione, keeping him in check. <laughs> Amazing. Long before that, Hermione is just just an incredible performance by her in the Shrieking Shack. She really keeps her head. She does. She acts so logically. She's thinking clearly and actually saying, hey, what about this? Okay, well, can you explain that? All right, I'm hearing what you're saying, but can you clarify this? Asking these questions about Sirius and Pettigrew when everything surrounding her is just crumbling into madness. Yeah. She also had faith in Crookshanks all the while, yeah. even though, like, listen, I think this no. is kind of biased, no. but it's the like The bond fine. between yeah, yeah, yeah. a cat and <laughs> his human is... It's the truest, purest magic. She also shows a keen grasp of responsibility in giving up muggle studies, which allows her to hand over the time turner because she understands the danger of magical objects. What's that, Ron? You talking about the felly tone? (laughs) I'm going to call you on the felly tone. Well, dears. Yeah. We think we'll leave it there. A little disappointing, but we're sure you did your best. We know Isaac Lee and Zach Cram are indispensable producer and researcher who really are wonderful. Guys, you're great. We know they did their best. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing the film adaptation of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Until then, remember, you should have died. Died rather than betray this podcast, as we would have done for you. From the mind of Crookshanks. Guys, that's not a rat. Ron, anybody. Hello? It's not a rat. How long do you guys think rats live? How stupid are you fucking kids? My God. Oh, I'm just going to kill him. Fine.